Now breathe in and out. One, two, three, breathe, breathe, breathe. and welcome to another episode of Stoned and Social. I am Natalie and today we are going to be talking about something very, very awesome. We are going to be talking about Earth Day and with me, I have someone very special to dive deep into Mother Nature's secrets. It is Haley, a environmental history and cannabis expert. Welcome to the show, Haley. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, anytime. So if you're just joining us and Haley's just joining us, you know that we get stoned and then we get social. Today, I am stoned on something that's a little bit unusual for me. I don't normally do this, but I am smoking a very nice bud out of our friends from social distancing pipe. We're using their pipe today and I am smoking something called CBD critical mass and it is a CBD heavy strain and it's light on the THC and it is really relaxing. I'm really enjoying what I'm feeling on it. What about you, Haley? What are you on today? Yeah. So, um, I indulged in a little bit of, um, moonshine haze live resin today. Ooh, that sounds fancy. Yeah. What's, is it, is it a hybrid? Do you know? It's a sativa, uh, dominant hybrid. Ooh, okay. Okay. That yeah. sounds nice. I like it. <laughs> so we're going to talk a little bit about Earth Day because since 1970, people all around the globe have come together each year and they've celebrated it to kind of support the earth while promoting sustainability, protecting the environment, and just overall green living. It's a really good time, I find, that you can check in with yourself and think about what you can do to better support this heavenly body of earth that we all occupy. So that can mean taking the time to recycle properly or choosing public transportation over using Uber. But another and honestly more fun way to celebrate our planet is to consciously support the cannabis brands and the plant that prioritize environmental stewardship. And so there's there's a lot of big questions we might touch on today, but the the bigger picture is, you know, are cannabis farms helping or are they hurting the planet? So Haley, can you tell us a little bit about your experience as someone who's into environmental history and cannabis as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so history and cannabis have both been passions of mine for quite a long time. Um, and it's only been recently that I've been able to kind of combine those two worlds um, into to one experience for myself. But I have a master's degree in history um, where I studied environmental history and I learned a lot about the environmental history of the American West. Um, one of those being the history of cannabis in the American West and how this crop and plant has been tied in with the, the modern growth of the American West and has over a hundred year history out here um, that has really impacted, you know, today's cannabis use throughout the United States. Um, so those are both two things that I find really fascinating. 
Wow, I did not know that. I mean, I know that we've had cannabis for a while. I did not know that we'd had it a hundred, you said a hundred years ago? Yeah, well over a hundred years. Cannabis has been present in our landscape um, for since the early 1900s being grown on American soil here. Yeah. Wow. That's cool. I know that for a while overseas, you know, it was grown and we brought it here. Do you know about how it first started being cultivated here in the U.S.? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, So largely, yeah, we used to import our cannabis from overseas. In the 1800s, it was common to find it in medicine. Um, But we were getting that cannabis from uh, England via India. Um, And then that moved into getting a lot of our cannabis from Mexico, Colombia, Jamaica. Um, Around the early 1900s, we know by around 1915, the U.S. government was growing hemp and growing cannabis in the United States. Um, but for the large majority of users, their stuff was coming from outside the country um, until really the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And it was legal, correct? It was legal to be growing it in the early 1900s here. It was. It was legal um, up until 1937, in fact. Mm-hmm. Reefer Madness. <laughs> mm-hmm. Reefer Madness and that lovely act that they passed. So yes. growing hemp for industrial purposes obviously is going to have a dramatic effect on the environment. And I know one of the biggest issues I hear and I think about personally is sustainability. You know, with the proliferation of commercially packaged cannabis products, we are seeing a huge, huge uptick in the use of plastic packaging. And just Mm -hmm. given the overwhelming volume of plastic pollution, particularly in the oceans, this is a serious concern. Um, I have read that a garbage truck's worth of plastic is currently dumped into the ocean every minute and that it's estimated by 2050 that there will be more plastics in the ocean than fish. It's really scary. It is. It is a scary, hard to imagine image, really, um, the scale that we're dumping plastic into the ocean and all of our environments and water systems throughout the planet. So it's not just the ocean that plastic is leaching into and poisoning. It's every waterway and every scrap of soil in our entire planet. Um, And it's a huge problem that the cannabis industry does contribute to in some ways. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I know that recycling is, you know, a little bit problematic because it goes back 25 to 30 years where we we were very gung-ho for recycling. It was really great, but we were only recycling 40% back into other recycled products and we weren't doing it very well. We don't clean plastic when we put it in the bin. And so people still throw dirty containers into recycling bins and they think that that's okay, but those are all contaminants, correct? Yeah, they are. They are. And it's very difficult to recycle plastic properly. And once it's produced, it's produced. And it's very likely that that plastic will be in existence forever. At some point, it's not going to just disappear from our environment. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's really important to be conscious of what we're producing and not trying to lean on recycling as a solution, even though it is a great option, it should still definitely be done. It's Mm -hmm. not the safety net for producing more plastic. 
Yeah. I think a lot of people might have that in their mind. They think, you know, I recycle, I'm doing good for the environment. What else do you want me to do? But right now we're down to 10 or 20% of plastic in the world being recycled from the 40% I was speaking about. And most Mm -hmm. of it is proactively being recycled by companies. Otherwise it's not going to go anywhere. And we can't ship plastic somewhere else in this country. We have to think about not using it or minimally using plastic and especially Uh, If you're a cannabis user, you might be saying, you know, is it possible for me to be a conscientious cannabis consumer, you know, in this way? And I think the biggest thing I can think of off the top of my head is we got to get rid of these disposable vape cartridges. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, There's so many different ways that we can revolutionize the cannabis industry and even though, again, we should still be trying to do our part and what we can mm-hmm. with recycling, our our power really in this environmental issue comes to our position as consumers, um, letting those companies know what we want from them because they're the ones producing the plastic. They're the ones who are generating that volume of trash, and then we're the ones left to deal with that product. Mm -hmm. So if we use our power as consumers to let those companies know, no more disposable vape cartridges, no more disposable or uh, one use joint 10 Mm. or uh, plastic packaging um, to switch over to reusable tens and more sustainable options, we can then use our power as consumers to help sway that environmental line. Absolutely. And I I think some people also forget, you know, with the the vape cartridges, we're also releasing chemicals and toxins into the air when we vape. You know, I've used vapes. I try not to use them. I try to, you know, focus on edibles. But I know that on top of the plastic, there's also toxins that may be going in the air. Have you, as someone who has studied the environmental history, has there ever been a time in history that you know about or can share with us where they've had to make some really tough decisions and pivot how they're going about doing things because they're not, it's not helpful. It's not, it's not sustainable long-term, obviously, you know, oil and things like that now, but in the past, has there been something like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what comes to mind for me is um, the period of the 1970s. We have what you call the green movement and we see for the first time, um, a large amount of people really wake up to the idea that we're polluting our environment instead of their parents and grandparents views that nature was to be harnessed, controlled, and used. These Mm -hmm. people were seeing the environmental impacts on the land around them. And so we created the EPA, we created the clean water act, the clean air act, and started to impose restrictions on, uh, industries that were polluting our environment um, through water, through air, through the soil, um, banning um, harmful pesticides that were burning holes in our ozone layer. All of these things began to happen around the 1970s. Also, at the same time, you really started to see large-scale home U.S. grows of potent marijuana beginning largely in the Northern California and Southern Oregon area that we all know Mm -hmm. as the Emerald Triangle. Um, Mm -hmm. That whole movement goes hand-in-hand with the rise of using a natural, homegrown, pure, potent plant that's grown well and grown naturally 
to naturally produce the effects in your body that you're looking to produce. Right. And for those who might be listening who are not part of the United States, the EPA is the Environmental Protection mm-hmm. Agency. Our president, Nixon, is the one who started this establishment. It's it's an independent sect of our federal government. And what its main focus is, is environmental protection matters. And so goes right along with the things that Haley's talking about. It's interesting that this came in the 70s and you used you used a phrase that people started to wake up about the harmful things that they were doing to the environment. And we all know the 70s as part of, you know, the hippie movement. What's the correlation between, you know, starting to care more about the environment as well as this kind of revolution with cannabis and drug use per se in general? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it was, almost boils down to a generational issue. So in the 1970s, you had um, people coming of age who were born in the 1950s, who then witnessed the civil rights movement, who witnessed the Vietnam era, and who saw that people and the planet and the world were being exploited in a way that wasn't sustainable for their future. And that the, the golden era of take, take, take wasn't sustainable for themselves in their future. And so we saw this counterculture movement in middle class um, suburban and urban areas um, where young folks began to fight back against the establishment and change things to the ways that they saw fit. And cannabis was a natural, easily grown native plant that spread through wind, that spread through property lines, despite decades of government's attempts to control it. The plant Mm -hmm. had never disappeared. So it was a wonderful symbol of revolution against the establishment and connection with Mother Earth at the same time. And so it towed that line between connection with nature and uh, kicking back against the establishment. I never really thought of it like that. That's a good that's a good way to think about it. It's it is I've I've read about there being seeds and strains of cannabis that have somehow survived all the way from the seventies that are still in use today. And that's that's crazy for me. I love that plants can transcend time, so to speak, as long as you take care of them, as long as you're willing to cultivate it and, and pass it on, it it will be there for you to use. And so, uh, sorry, we're, we're just going to talk about cultivation since I mentioned it. <clears throat> I know a big question for people and a big thing I've seen is the lighting and the size of the land, the resources that are needed to keep a cannabis farm up and running is really huge. It's I know that cannabis is a particularly thirsty plant, and so the water cost is not limited to outdoor operations or illegal growing. Each individual plant requires, I've read, almost six gallons of water per day. Are there mindful ways to grow cannabis that can actually help the environment? There is. It's it's tricky because all agriculture is a a balance between needing or wanting to grow this plant and Mm -hmm. understanding that it is going to have a negative impact on the environment. Um, Any form of agriculture is taking resources and altering the landscape. So there is 
no way to grow cannabis without negatively impacting the environment because you're changing that landscape. You're introducing a plant that is taking resources from native, naturally spread plants. But there are mindful ways that you can do it to reduce your impact on the environment as much as possible while still being able to consciously grow this plant. Um, there's tons of practices um, in farming that I won't go into now that are <laughs> complex and involve irrigation and water systems and how to return nutrients back into the soil in proper ways. But all of this science has been developed so quickly over the last few decades. And as legalization progresses and federal prohibition relaxes on cannabis, that opens up avenues for scientists and farmers to be able to study, test, and improve these methods. So the more we get legalized states in different environments testing and growing these plants in different environments, the better the science will get. Do you feel like cannabis maybe has been picked on a little bit because it's still, you know, even though it's being legalized all across the country and decriminalized slow, slowly but surely, there are a lot of stigmas still attached to cannabis and cannabis users. Do you feel like cannabis farms and farmers particularly are getting the rabble rabble going because it is cannabis? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this stigma has persisted since the early 1900s, since lawmakers have begun to officially confuse hemp and marijuana and mm -hmm. cannabis and all of these terms and things that they didn't understand and then enacted legislative policies that have somehow lasted for well over a century, despite all of the empirical evidence presented by science. And so you have these farmers who are growing <clears throat> a plant that's been, for all intents and purposes, proven to be safe, proven to be beneficial, and proven to be uh, a crop worth looking into on a federal mm -hmm. level. But we still have these stigmas because of lack ed of education or other reasons that <clears throat> we just haven't been able to move forward on a federal level on this. And so every person who grows a marijuana plant across the United States is in at all times in danger of being persecuted by the federal government. And they have to go through so many more restrictive laws and regulations than almost any other agricultural group and way more than um, tobacco, alcohol and firearms are even regulated in the United States. Um, and so they're up against a, a pretty big hill. Yeah, that's that's so that's so strange to think about that, that, you know, you have to jump through all of these hoops to grow a plant. I know a farm that I I'm really in love with and that I try to support anytime I'm out in California. There's a farm called uh, Beha Floor and it's out near the mm -hmm. Redwood Valley. They utilize a carbon sequestration model to try to make a difference and for anyone who doesn't know, carbon sequestration is a natural or artificial process by which carbon dioxide is removed from the atmosphere and held in solid or liquid form. And so they use this to mitigate or defer global warming from their footprint and reduce the consequences of climate change. And I'm 
I'm like super impressed with what they're doing. I, I love what they're doing. Yeah, that's an amazing piece of technology. <laughs> I've also heard about farms, you know, pushing to use lower wattage and more eco-friendly lighting because mm-hmm. energy usage is also a huge source of carbon emissions. Can you talk about the energy source that is, you know, that cannabis has to use to get the farm up and going and to keep it going? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It takes a huge amount of wattage to artificially grow a marijuana plant inside. Our sun produces a just unimaginable amount of energy and wattage that when we try to replicate on our own takes a huge amount of fossil fuels and again negatively impacts the environment no matter where we're getting that energy source from other than growing the plant outside. However, Mm -hmm. you can grow bigger plants, more potent plants, experiment more. You can increase your revenue and increase the genetic quality of the plant. So again, there's that trade-off. But the LED lights and the other um, energy systems that we've tried to put in is helping. And these are new technologies. Um, Over the course of my experience growing cannabis um, in just a few years, I saw the shift between um, high high pressure sodium lights um, to the LED lights and just saw for myself the amount of energy decrease um, that it took. And it was amazing to see the technology progress. Um, And some states um, have enacted laws requiring growers to use these lower um, energy using technologies. Mm -hmm. And so as the technology progresses and the more progressive states keep up with regulating those grows and ensuring that these people are adhering to the more environmentally sustainable uh, methods, we can help reduce our impact. Um, I believe currently it's something like 5% of all energy in California goes to growing marijuana. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that's quite a lot. Yeah. That is that is huge. I mean, California is a big state, but five percent, excuse me, five percent for a whole entire state being used for mm-hmm. one thing. I know that upsets a lot of people. And you mentioned the the LED lights. I know that incorporating the LED lighting, recycling CO2, you know, irrigation, water collection, greenhouse facilities, all of that is gonna maximize the use of, like you said, the amazing power of natural sunlight and natural products. And I think soon we're going to see even more efficient processing equipment, efficient heat, efficient power and moisture control systems as legalization rolls out. The thing with legalization is if they can all get behind it, it would have a huge and significant impact on reducing the number of not only illegal grows that hurt and drain the planet's resources, but also the farms that are up and running might have access to things that maybe they didn't know about before. And I think coupled with the emergence of this, you know, these progressive techniques like dry farming, um, this is a cultivation technique that involves using no water whatsoever. There's hope that legal cultivation can further reduce its carbon footprint. Do you know, like, do you know a little bit about dry farming? Um, I know a little bit about dry farming, not too much. Um, It works in areas that are well geographically suited to it. So you have to have 
the perfect plot of land essentially kind of in the right climate. There's mm -hmm. areas like Arizona, Southern Arizona, where dry farming is going to be cost prohibited, very difficult and not as efficient as it's going to be in certain parts of the country. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I know that for for a while, like, you know, again, most of these techniques come from generations before us, but mm -hmm. I've been reading about dry farming. And while it is environmentally responsible, and like you said, it is, it is good at conserving water and encourage the plants to survive naturally. It deepens their root system because they go, you know, underground for water, sometimes 20 to 30 feet deep. Mm -hmm. You do need that like just perfect atmosphere to have it. I know people have talked about it in California because the water shortages, but mm -hmm. dry farming sounds, it sounds hard. It sounds really hard. It sounds like you need like, like you said, that perfect, that perfect soil, that perfect environment and everything. It is. And it's, it's difficult to tell farmers to change what they're doing and to mm -hmm. spend money mm -hmm. when that crop is their livelihood and this system mm -hmm. may not work and it may not produce as well as their previous system did. So mm -hmm. it is difficult to go to these people whose farms are their livelihoods and say, rip down everything that you're doing and do Start it the way over. that we're telling you to oh, because... Yeah. Uh, you know, we're killing the fish in the Eel River. Uh, the salmon mm -hmm. are dying in the Eel River in California because of marijuana practices and farming practices polluting the water uh, systems mm -hmm. there. So, <clears throat> but it's how do you tell that farmer to take food off his table yeah. in exchange? Yeah. Um, so it's a different, difficult, difficult balance there. <laughs> I understand. And I think, again, with the legalization, if there were a program or something where farmers could get assistance to do these things, they mm -hmm. would be way more susceptible to, to trying to make that change. Because like you said, asking someone to tear down everything they've worked so hard for, what is putting food on their table currently and almost starting from square one, it's not that there's no appeal to that right now. There's just no appeal because you're like, this is working. This is making me money. Why do I need to change? I didn't even know that Eel River was, I didn't know that the salmon were being affected so heavily. Mm -hmm. That's just kind of one example of a group that has, you know, has made a bit of a media splash and has an environmental group around it to, mm -hmm. to try and change those practices. Um, but you kind of hit it the, <clears throat> the nail right on the head with needing federal programs for this. Um, <clears throat> the last two major times I can think of when we've done something similar in American history, the 1930s, after we had the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression, Mm -hmm. um, the federal government instituted programs that trained farmers and gave farmers financial assistance to change their farming practices that had caused the Dust Bowl in the first place. Mm -hmm. So they mm -hmm. instituted that federal program and helped change the environment for the better and walk back some of the negative impacts they had caused. And then again, in the 1970s, when we had the environmental movement rise, we again provided federal assistance um, to some farmers and uh, created a large federal assistance program to mm -hmm. help farmers offset costs by changing to more environmentally friendly methods. 
Yeah. And again, for our listeners who are not located in the U.S., the Dust Bowl was, Mm -hmm. it was really a a bad time for us. It was, it was a drought stricken, you know, period of time here in the U.S., which we experienced severe dust storms and dry periods in the 30s, like Haley was saying, and high winds were kind of choking out regions from Texas to Nebraska. It was, it was killing people and livestock and crops were dying. And it, it had to do with, you know, the economic depression, the extended drought, unusually high temperatures, poor agricultural practices. And I think the wind erosion all kind of contributed to making that dust bowl. Do you see anything like that happening again? Like, do you think that could happen again? Um, it definitely could. Um, I think our farming practices have improved to such a point where it's not likely, but we are impacting the environment in other ways now. Mm -hmm. Um, Essentially there was, there's several holes in the ship and we patched one, but others are still (laughs) leaking. Um, And we haven't quite gotten around to patching those yet or haven't Mm -hmm. wanted to yet. Um, And so we're still draining aquifers Um, now running out of water permanently becomes a huge issue for us. Um, rather than depleting the soil nutritions um, and deforesting to the point that we're destroying entire landscapes, we've stopped doing that, but we're still sucking our aquifers dry. So now we have a new problem <laughs> to mm-hmm. face. And what are aquifers? Is that what is that groundwater? Can you explain to me what that is? Yes, yes. So um, basically aquifers are... V- oddly shaped pockets in between layers of rock in the earth that hold water. Um, And it takes thousands to millions of years for water to seep into these areas. Um, And so a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, when we first started farming um, large portions of the American Midwest and the American West, it seemed we had a huge water source that we would never deplete Mm. because we could drill a hole in the ground and water would come out. Um, We just had to keep digging further and further and further down until we realized we are never, ever going to put that water back in a rate that we are not, or that we can stop them from running out. So it's only a matter of time now before our aquifers run out. Um, And in the American West right now, A lot of farms operate on a hundred year rule. Um, mm-hmm. And so, and most of these systems have been in place for decades already. And that hundred year rule essentially is a scientific guesstimate that we're going to run out of water in a hundred years. Um, and we are, are many, many decades into that, Ooh, that system already. So yes. Yeah, so it's a very looming threat that every drop of water becomes more and more precious with every passing mm-hmm. year here. So how mm-hmm. do we, how do we mitigate that while also grow the crops that we want mm-hmm. and that we need? <laughs> Ooh, yeah, that's, I grew up in a really small town and I had friends who had wells on their property. You know, I grew up around farms and things. And so that we would pump the well for water when we were pumping the well, is that, was that coming from an aquifer? It probably was, uh, depending on exactly where in the country you were and what the ground was like there. Um, So you have groundwater that is kind of sitting in the soil. And then if it seeps 
much, much further down into the ground, you have those aquifers. Um, so you might be taking groundwater or you might be taking deeper water from the aquifer system. Wow. Um, but that groundwater that you were taking mm-hmm. would have trickled down to that aquifer eventually had you not used it. I am asking that because I only recently went back maybe five years ago and they had said on their farm, I said, remember the well? And they said, yeah, that well, we, we can't get water out of it anymore. And mm-hmm. I remember being kind of confused, like, well, what do you mean? It's a well, it's water. Where, where did it go? And so maybe like you're saying, it was an aquifer, which is uh, something new. You know, I've heard the term. I'm not super familiar with it. So I feel like I've learned something today. I'm always happy (laughs) to learn something. That's kind of crazy to think about that we have a, we have a finite supply of water we can tap into. Yeah. And it's, it is insane to see how quickly those wells can run dry. You know, Mm -hmm. they drilled it thinking the water would flow forever. Mm Mm-hmm. But it didn't. Um, and, and every single one of those wells that was drained is sucking from the other. And you're mm-hmm. all putting a straw into the same glass. Um, yeah. And the more you drink from that straw, the faster the water is going to drain. But no one else is really thinking about everybody else's straws. I and know. so there's the problem. <laughs> Yeah, there's I am I am such a hippie at heart. I've, you know, as a kid, I did ocean cleanups and replanted trees and did everything I could and something I heard a lot from people who just were like, "Why are you doing this?" And what I even hear now, people say when I when I see them litter and I say, "Can you please pick that up? Like we only have one planet." People will say, "It's not my problem. Like I'm not going to be here." And that's such a weird and selfish way to think about the planet, which is really, you know, given us life and continues to sustain everything we throw at it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's so sad that that viewpoint still exists in so many people because that's how we got here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we'll yep. only, only be able to continue our planet by thinking of it for our future, not for ourselves. Right. Well, let's let's pivot a little bit, and we're going to talk about mm-hmm. just some general ways that cannabis is actually helping and can help the planet. The first thing that pops into my head is I know hemp growth decreases pesticide pollution. Hemp is normally impervious to pests, but in contrast to cotton or flax, which are known to expend half of the pesticides sprayed on them, hemp cultivation requires less use of pesticides or herbicides. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. Hemp is a insanely hardy plant. Uh, it's very difficult to destroy. It's very difficult to get rid of. Um, and it, it doesn't need a whole lot really in comparison to a lot of other plants. Um, and it's, it's easy to grow organically. It's easy to grow in large fields and it's easy to apply it to a lot of different uses. Um, so it's a really hardy plant that can save the environment through a number of its properties. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't really realize that, but they are, they are pretty hardy. I know also hemp can reestablish soil fertility. It's, it's reputed to grow in different territories, different soil types. People call it weed because Mm -hmm. it grows like one, you know, it has deep roots. It holds the dirt together. It counteracts soil erosion and hemp additionally expands the microbial element of dirt. 
I've heard at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're correct. Um, hemp will grow in just about any environment um, and any soil. Um, it'll grow out of a crack in the sidewalk or through the <laughs> sidewalk if it's so inclined. Um, it, it is a, a very environmentally tough plant that can be used in a lot of different climates and soil types. Mm -hmm. And I know apart from that, the stem, the leaves of the plant, they're full of nutrients and supplements. And that as the plant itself grows and sheds its leaves, these nutrients then return to the earth and restore it for better yields for, like you were saying before, the future. So mm -hmm. weed's kind of looking out for us, even if we're not looking out for it. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because when you harvest hemp, you can actually leave the center stalks and the woodier, hardy, harder pieces, if you don't want them for whatever you're producing, you can leave those in the field and till them right back in. And then bam, there's your fertilizer for your next wow. season. Um, so, so they cool. are truly self-replenishing plants. Um, and they, fun fact, were a required crop to grow in the 1700s in the United States. Um, if you are a colonial landholder um, in one of the new colonies, you had to grow hemp in addition to cotton because they were considered essential crops and hemp was known to be beneficial as a rotating crop for their, uh, for their soils. Mm, wow, that's cool. Did not know mm -hmm. that. <laughs> That's cool. I know another way that hemp can help is it absorbs lethal metals. It's been proven to reduce the level of poisonous metals in the soil. It's so successful at retaining these harmful metals that I heard it has been considered for expelling radiation from Fukushima and even more it's been grown in contaminated soil and can still be used for certain industrial applications. Have you heard about that? I hadn't heard about that. That's really interesting with that in Fukushima. Um, I'd heard about like some different funguses and stuff they were testing with that. But I mean, hemp has antimicrobial, antifungal, um, a lot of different properties from the cannabinoids um, in the hemp fiber stalks. So I would not be surprised um, to see that information. That is that is really cool. Yeah. And you mentioned it's really easy to grow. I have a black thumb. I cannot grow anything. The only thing I have alive right now is a cactus. I think it's still alive. And cannabis is the only thing I've been able to successfully, successfully grow without feeling like I'm having to watch over it and really keep watch on it. I'm so bad. Why is cannabis so easy to grow? Yeah, it's at its root, the a very weedy plant. Um, <laughs> it's been environmentally, you know, perfected over thousands of years. The hemp plant is, you know, at least ten thousand years old, um, and that plant has perfected how to throw, how to grow and thrive in many different environments. And then we, in the last. 40, 50 years have been able to genetically perfect this plant in indoor environments through gen uh, selective genetics and breeding and growing this mm -hmm. plant to be exactly what we want it to be. So the plant that we have in front of us today has been cherry picked to have all of the best genetic components placed into a plant that has 10,000 years of hardiness behind it. <laughs> That's cool. 
That's very cool. Um, I mentioned earlier about hemp and cannabis reducing carbon emission impacts. I know that it has the ability to not only change the planet, but in my opinion, save it because it is one of the rare crops that it's equipped for cutting down carbon emission through fast carbon dioxide take up. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know a whole lot about the science. Um, I wish I knew more about exactly. <laughs> uh, I wish I had statistics uh, for you right on the tip of my mind. But I know that once you, if you consider just the carbon impact of it, it can replace so many different plants in terms of environmental impact and providing the same quality of product that we grow these other plants for. Um, Mm. Whether it's, you know, using a lot of industrial applications, foodstuff applications, um, uh, productions, factory applications, there's so many different things that we can use hemp for. And it also is a carbon negative plant. It is beneficial Mm. for the environment and it takes more than it Uh, Yeah, it takes up more from the environment than it produces back into it. And then it stores that uh, carbon that we then can mix back into the field as a food source for the next Mm -hmm. generation of plant. So we're able to remove our carbon emissions from the air and then put them back into the soil that stores them and puts them back into next year's crop in a way that's beneficial rather than just belching more gas out in the air as a lot of other um, traditional agriculture and farming methods do. Yeah. And I, I mentioned, you know, the carbon sequestering earlier, but basically mm-hmm. the the hemp will sequester or trap that carbon from the air into the plants. And each ton of hemp output captures around, I read 1.65 tons of carbon from the air. And that's like it's hard to think of air in terms of tons, but yes. that's a that's a lot of carbon that the plant is taking back. It is. That is a significant amount. And the technology for indoor grows that so in addition to doing it on very, very large scale outdoor agricultural farms, the technology that we've created to capture that fa- that carbon and reuse it within indoor environments can also be applied to other agricultural and production methods that, for instance, uh, brewing beer, I've seen Mm -hmm. something similar done where they capture and reuse that carbon to feed the product again. Mm. Um, And so it's taking that carbon and trapping it within your own environmental cycle rather Mm -hmm. than contributing to the larger one. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's I did not know that about beer. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I know they also beer also takes a lot to make because of the the plant that it uses, the barley and things like that. Um, I also read that hemp can stop untimely deforestation, that the permanent destruction of forests in order to make paper products or building products like you were talking about before, it's really caused irreparable harm to the trees on the planet. And hemp not only grows much faster than trees, but it takes much less hemp to produce the same amount of goods. Uh, It makes an excellent raw alternative for wood and paper, right? It does. It does. So hemp is 
exponentially better for the environment when it comes to creating textiles, fabrics, rope, um, and other industrial uh, materials like that. Um, it grows much faster. It uses significantly less water. And again, going back to that rotational crop ability, it feeds itself rather than kind of slash agriculture when mm. it comes to um, growing, you know, tree farms for paper. Um, right. So it is a lot less environmentally impactful in that way as long as farms aren't slash deforesting large areas of forested mm -hmm. land in order to grow hemp farms there, um, right. such as we've seen in uh, Northern California. So as we progress and move towards hemp, it's also important to make sure that we improve our hemp farming practices as well and learning how to farm in conjunction with our environment to make the environmental impact even less. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's yeah, I, I, I think that's true. And from everything I've been researching and reading, I'm a, I'm a nerd like you. I love just learning about this stuff so that I can make better decisions. What can you do if you're just the average home cannabis user or grower that can help with the environment or, you know, what you're doing. I would say the first thing you can do is try to grow outside, right? We were talking mm -hmm. about the LED lights. Um, what's something that you could do if you're a home user or home grower of cannabis that can help offset some of the effects of cannabis to the planet? Yeah, absolutely. If to start, if you're a home user and you're able to grow your own outdoors, certainly try. Um, mm -hmm. It is an amazing way to connect with the plant, to reduce your environmental impact, and to produce your own cost-effective supply. If that is beyond your abilities, it's perfectly fine to still get store-bought, but be a mm -hmm. conscious consumer. Um, research the brands that the dispensaries offer. Know what pesticides they use. Know what certifications they have. Look into their farming practices. See if they're doing anything that shows that they are outwardly working towards sustainability within their farming practices. And then demand that your dispensaries carry the brands that are sustainable and drop the brands that are not. Use mm -hmm. your dollar and use your voice as a consumer to help lessen the environmental impact. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Talk to your dispensaries about packaging. Lobby your local Congress people and legislators about changing uh, your recreational and medical laws to reduce packaging and environmental impact all of those things. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. You, if you can, what's really good is we want to start trying to promote the establishment of cannabis waste programs because like I said, there's so much plastic in the cartridges and in the packaging that there is no way to federally recycle this stuff, you know, and have a program for it to be used. Also, I am a fan of pretty much anything that's that's glass or ceramic when I do smoke, which is rarely because mm -hmm. it's something that is, I can use it over and over and over again. And I'm not, you know, I'm not using a disposable vape. I'm not using a product that is not going to be biodegradable or anything like that. Absolutely. There's a few brands I'm going to share with with you and with the listeners on how, you know, brands and companies that I found that just align with the way I feel about cannabis. The first one is um, Kyoko Co. 
And they have been using a really innovative cannabis packaging right now that utilizes compostable materials in all of their products. They have honey straws, they have tea pouches, all of this. And when it's disposed of in a county issued compost bin, then just their single straw wrapper begins to degrade in six months and it will decompose entirely within two years. And I think a lot of their other things, because they have tea containers and they have all these other, you know, means that are holding their things. They have, they have little things on their site and you can talk to them in the store as well. They will help you figure out how to reuse things so, so you can use them as jewelries or make them into keys or anything else. I know they use a lot of organic, non-GMO whole plant herbs and teas and flowers and things like this. And they use outdoor, like you were talking about. They try to grow all their stuff outdoor. Um, mm -hmm. All of their stuff is from farmings that are done outdoor. There's also a company called Flora, Flow Canna. And I really like this company. They're, they're a network of farms that specialize in sustainable sun-grown cannabis. It is, it, is, it is in California. It's where you were talking about in the Emerald Triangle. It's a family-run, small-batch, independent farm ecosystem. And it's also you can know where your cannabis is coming from. All of the cannabis is grown holistically and responsibly and regeneratively, like Haley was talking about, so that the farmer and the people who are using it know where it's coming from. I really like buying local when I can. I'm not sure if you do that as well. I do, yeah. Um, I have the benefit of living in Colorado and having access to a number of really great environmental sustainable uh farms in the area that use mountain runoff water and Ooh. outdoor farms uh, that I really enjoy that's cool. using. That's cool. One of the last ones that I found is care by design, because as we've said a few times during this episode, an issue is the waste, all the packaging and everything like that. So care by design has found a way to combat this dilemma while still remaining compliant with child resistant packaging laws. And so they take all of their CBD rich vape cartridges and they have eliminated the need for plastic and still kept them child resistance. And so they're hoping because they've calculated that if you stacked a year's worth of child resistant cartridge packaging up, you would end up with a pile that is 916,000 feet tall, which is 30 times higher than Mount Everest. That's just, wow. that's just crazy. That's just crazy. <laughs> I can believe it, but wow. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes I'll get things from the dispensary and when I'm, you know, I know I've only gotten two things, but I get this huge bag and I'm like, this whole bag for these two tiny little things. So mm -hmm. I'm going to try and do my best to check out what packaging is being used. I, li I like what they're doing. That's great. So cannabis and our earth, as you may have picked up right now, go hand in hand. And this wonderful plant comes from nature. And that's why so many people really feel connected to mother nature when they're using it. It's popular for a lot of reasons, but saving the planet is not usually one of them. But as we've shared with you today, hemp is extremely beneficial to not only the soil, but also the air. And Earth Day is a great opportunity to reflect on your personal relationship 
with the environment because it also gets a lot of bad press cannabis does about its impact on the environment. So it's important to remember that cannabis can be incredibly positive provided you make those opportunities possible. Cannabis gives back to the earth. And so just try to think about how you can do your part. We're, you know, from two tree huggers to another, (laughs) this is how you can help on Earth Day if you are so inclined. What do you think, Haley? Yeah, absolutely. Cannabis is an amazing way to connect with nature, to kick back against the establishment and to to learn about our environment all at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you stayed with us this long, you know that we do Munchie of the Week. Mm-mm-mm. So Haley, we're going to give you the opportunity to tell us what your Munchie of the week is what is a munchie that you just go to whenever you're stoned it doesn't matter how bad it is we sometimes we have healthy munchies sometimes we have just incredibly unhealthy munchies (laughs) well it's it's pretty unhealthy but not too bad because it's (laughs) vegan but my go-to lately that i've just been crushing are uh pints of cherry garcia uh vegan ice cream from ben and jerry's (laughs) I didn't even know that they made it in vegan. They do. It's so wow. good. Wow. It's, yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good non-vegan. So I imagine, <laughs> whoa. So is it non-dairy then? Is it totally? It is. It's uh, made with almond milk. Oh, I'm lactose intolerant. I might have to check that out. <laughs> it is so good. Highly recommend it. I love I love Ben and Jerry's. Pretty much anything they make is is really good. So so Cherry Garcia, the vegan non-dairy frozen dessert yes. is your choice. Yes. That is a pretty damn good choice for a <laughs> munchie of the week. We do have a sterner question of the day and it is related to the environment. We have Adam who would like to know what is the biggest environmental issue for our country, in your opinion? Ooh. I know there's I so would, many to choose from. I know. <laughs> I was like, which one do I – where do I start? Ooh, so I think one that um, – I mean, you've heard me talk a lot about in this episode uh, is water. Um, mm-hmm. And our, our use – our sustainable use of water and recognizing that we are – very, very quickly tapping our finite source of clean water uh, within the United States, within North America and the entire globe, um, and that we are fast approaching uh, irreversible situation when it comes mm-hmm. to, to water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I didn't even know that about the water. And now that I do, I'm just mad. I don't even know, like, I don't even know what I what I don't even know what I can do. Like it just seems so so much bigger than than me. Um, but yeah, it's very 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 real, very very serious. Um, you heard me talk about what I think is one of the biggest environmental issues is water pollution. I really just can't believe that on a global scale we dump two million tons of sewage into waterways every single day plus pesticides and other chemicals on land that do runoff um for me that really gets to me the ocean is really special to me and lakes rivers any body of water i'm just so sad that you know 
this is the reality. So for me, it's going to be water pollution because like you said, this is going to be something that we cannot go back and fix <laughs> once once this Pandora's box been open. It's not going to be able to be undone. Exactly. Okay. Well, you guys, thanks for joining us for another episode of Stone and Social. Haley, can you please tell everyone where they can find you on the web if they want to follow you or listen to more of your amazingly talented wealth of knowledge on the environment? I'm so happy I got to speak with you today. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. So everybody can find me um, on Instagram. Um, I'm Haley, aka the Cannabis Nerd. So it's at the.cannabis.nerd. Um, you can also check out my website, which is linked on my Instagram, or it's Haley Grew, H-A-I-L-E-Y-G-R-O-O.com. Um, and you can see some of my work in environmental history, um, as well as my work in cannabis education and advocacy. Yep. And we'll make sure to put all of those links in this episode that so that you can find Haley and you can read more about what she's doing and all of the amazing things that she knows about. She is just like a human encyclopedia with this stuff. I'm again, I'm so impressed. I learned so much today. You guys know where you can find us. We're on Instagram at stoned in social. You can send us pictures of your cannabis. You can suggest munchie of the week for us. If you have a question, send it our way. Or if you just want to tell us how much you enjoy us, we will do the same to you. And guys, we will see you next week. Don't forget, namaste stoned.